This is Monday Morning QB, September 20th, 2021. I'm Askiya Mohammed. Today on the show, a virtual rather than a celebratory Congressional Black Caucus anniversary last week. Disabled voters in Texas sue to block new voting restrictions. D.C. residents react to police violence and grassroots efforts to restore unemployment benefits, and the pleasant intersection of baseball and poetry. All that and more, stay with us. Because of COVID pandemic restrictions, for the second consecutive year, the Congressional Black Caucus, now 56 members strong, held a subdued legislative conference last week. There were none of the glitzy receptions and there was no fancy annual banquet celebrating this year's 50th anniversary of the CBC. And this year, the black Democrats in both the House and Senate are not alone when they see many of the aspirations of their constituents being blocked by a senator from West Virginia. All of the powers at his hand, the president doesn't seem to be removed Joe Manchin either. So I think Joe Manchin is doing a calculus that none of us can understand because it it gives the appearance it's all about himself. Uh, It has nothing to do with protecting his party or given the importance of these packages that the president is trying to get passed to recalibrate the American society so it's more inclusive and and so many more people can have jobs and participate. It it, it isn't, it's kind of clear that, that that these senators don't have the American people there that are there. They they appear to be looking at their own vote count in their own state. And and even at that, it's not clear because in the case of Manchin, he represents a, one of the poorest states in the United States and a state that desperately needs as much of the investment as possible that comes out of this broader package in order to weather the global uh, climate change challenge that's decimating his state. And so I, you know, I I don't fault the CBC when it comes to Joe Manchin. I mean, he's, um, he's not acting in He's not acting in a way that's consistent with the interest of his constituents, the country, or his party. So he's very hard to figure. Well, let me ask it this way. Is there anything that black legislators, that the black constituents around the country can do to flex their muscle? Isn't there something that black people can just say, we don't care what you say and do, this is what we're going to do and this is what we want? Well, I mean, you you saw in the case of Stacey Abrams in Georgia that her determination was 
to overcome whatever obstacles that uh, Georgia could throw in the face of black voters and get people to the polls. But, and, and we have to do that, but you do have to realize that um, as much as we'd like to think we control our own fate, we don't. And um, you have to plan accordingly. You have to do the best you can in the situation, but understand the, the deck is stacked against you. And keep from being disheartened when your best efforts don't necessarily succeed. I think the tendency is to become cynical when your best efforts don't make it, when you face impossible odds. It's, it's uh, that phrase from Adam Clayton Powell, keep the faith. Considering um, the idea of cynicism, there are people, in particular, let's the reparations movement, people who thought that the Congressional Black Caucus has now let them down concerning their support for reparations and getting that through Congress, and now they're feeling disappointed and cynical as though the Black Caucus has um, let them down. I think that's being overly critical and not realistic. I, I think... Uh, people should be wary of should be wary of setting goals that aren't attainable and use that as marketing it's not productive and you know if, if you if you do win reparations and it's not absolutely the size it's supposed to be, you understand you've done yourself more disservice than you ever could have done. So I think you have to think about what is it that you really want to achieve to make sure it is part of the debate, to make sure that people keep in front of them that achieving equality is in front of them as as a goal. Without reparations, it, it is virtually impossible to achieve. It's, I, I would say it, 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 it is impossible. But But as long as people understand the size, the twisted way in which the lack of wealth distorts achieving equity and how much it would cost to overcome it, then I think you, you, you help, you reinforce the need for real justice. So the framework, the framework of reparations is a powerful tool. Whether you get the reparations or not, it's a powerful tool in driving home 
what policies have to look like, and, and how expensive it is if you're going to do the policies and have equity at heart. If, if you're going to address the lack of wealth in the black community and understand that it has nothing to do with black income, this has to do with being black and not having wealth at any income level, then you understand how expensive the lack of equity is. But people should be honest and very uh, retrospective about it. If, if Congress did say, okay, you're right, we're for reparations. Here's three thousand dollars. Well, that didn't close anything. That's totally meaningless, and you would have sold your soul for nothing. What's the best thing that came out of this year's Congressional Black Caucus Conference, the fiftieth anniversary conference? I'm 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 hopeful that because it was online, many people got to participate who normally just can't come to Washington. Uh, who normally don't see the seriousness of the caucus. The normal caucus includes parties and uh, fashion shows and, and, and other side things that are meant to be celebratory but, but don't have substance and then normally people pick on those things. Having it virtual meant we didn't have any of that. We had a moment when people who normally can't come to Washington got to hear from very serious people and had it on record because, of course, you can go back and, and look at the various uh, panels and see serious conversations on serious policy matters in depth. We lack, unfortunately, um, the kind of 24-hour news channels that uh, the other communities have to get that many voices at the table at once. And so I hope that's the, the good part. Um, and, and so hopefully um, a lot of people benefited who normally wouldn't. I hope that's the case. Professor William Spriggs, Howard University economist, AFL-CIO economist, thank you for talking with us. Thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for being a voice. You know, not only is it that we have to be on 24-hour news channels, but every media outlet we can manage, whether it's our remaining newspapers or our moments on radio, we have to seize them and use them in a, as a powerful tool. Earlier this month, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed into law SB1, one of the most restrictive new voting laws in the country. Even before the bill reached the governor's desk, two lawsuits were filed against it, and that number has now grown to five. Among the claims being made is that SB1 takes particular aim at voters with disabilities who already face significant barriers to exercising their legal right to vote. Sue Goodwin reports. 
Among the many provisions written into the new voting law in Texas that will have a disproportionate impact on voters with disabilities are new restrictions on absentee voting. SB 1 adds new ID requirements for voting by mail and makes it a felony for any election official to send out unsolicited applications or ballots to vote by mail. Michelle Bishop is manager of voter access and engagement at the National Disability Rights Network and a disabled voter herself, and she describes the kind of impact these kinds of restrictions can have. I think any limit on absentee and vote by mail is really concerning just because it is important to have as many options as possible for voters, not just voters with disabilities, but every voter is so different. And what makes the system work for them and their unique set of circumstances is different. And there are always going to be people for whom getting to an exact location during a set number of hours on one exact day is just not going to be possible. Vote by mail and absentee voting become really critical there. And they're even more important for many people with disabilities for whom those polling places may not be accessible or where we see limits on how long you can take to cast your ballot at the polling place. And someone may need that extra time to fill out their ballot. And when they can do it from the comfort of their home, they're not subject to a three-minute or five-minute limit uh, to cast their ballot. But Michelle Bishop's concerns about how the new Texas law makes it harder for disabled people to vote doesn't stop there. SB 1 puts new restrictions on what kind of assistance disabled voters can receive while casting their ballot. Anyone who's helping someone fill out their ballot will now have to complete paperwork, documenting their relationship to the voter. They also must sign an oath under penalty of perjury that limits the extent of their assistance to reading the ballot to the voter, directing the voter to read the ballot, marking the voter's ballot, or directing the voter to mark the ballot. Michelle Bishop says these kinds of restrictions come from completely unfounded stereotypes of people with disabilities. So we do sometimes hear from poll workers, poll watchers, other voters, that they were so concerned that they saw someone helping someone else to mark their ballot. And what if they're trying to influence their vote? And it really is, it's a form of prejudice. It's a really outdated way of thinking about people with disabilities, that we are somehow less capable, less independent, less intelligent, and that we're just so vulnerable that if someone is helping us to mark our ballots, they're going to be telling us, influencing us who to vote for. Um, And there's just no evidence that that happens. There's just someone bringing with them someone that they trust or using the poll workers, if that's who they trust, to help them to mark and cast their ballots so that they can have their voices heard. This idea of influence, it's kind of a side effect of all the concern about voter fraud and trying to identify voter fraud, that this thing might be happening that realistically just isn't really happening. And the more we limit your right to assistance when you go to vote, all we're going to do is stop people from having their voices heard. Now, even while Texas has some of the country's strictest voting laws, it's hardly the only Republican-led state to propose and pass new restrictions that will make it harder for disabled people to vote. Georgia, for example, passed a law this year banning the giving away of water or food to voters standing in line near polling sites.
I mean, in that Georgia heat, <laughs> that water could be life-saving if we think about someone who potentially is on the verge of a diabetic emergency. Uh, that could be life-saving, to be able to bring that to someone who is waiting in line for hours, to be able to cast their ballots. Anytime we see restrictions on things like early voting, uh, that create options for voters with disabilities. So that if you have to figure out, how am I going to get to this polling place? Is it going to be accessible to me? Do I need to bring someone with me to assist me? Having a two to three week period to do that versus one shot on one day to get it done is really beneficial. When we see strict voter photo ID laws, the first thing that comes to mind to me, are all your licensing offices fully accessible? Is a person with a disability going to be able to go to one and get the proper type of ID? That's not always the case. They're also not always local. You know, I could drive 10 minutes and get to my DMV. There are millions of Americans who live miles from a licensing office that's open more than a couple days a week, and we still can't guarantee that they're all compliant with federal access laws. So we really have to think those things through before we create these requirements that may have just a whole host of barriers for voters with disabilities. And when that happens, it affects all of us, not just voters with disabilities. Right. Our government is essentially built on a whole a whole chorus of voices when we cast our ballots. So really, anyone being denied access to that vote is a threat to the election results being accurate and fair and truly reflective of the will of the people. And we're talking about, in particular with people with disabilities, a group of people who so much of our ability to live and work and play in our communities is determined by our elected officials. And there's just no way it doesn't impact you. People with disabilities are anywhere from one in five to one in four of the population. So if it's not you, it's absolutely someone that you love. Or it could be you someday. But you could join at any time. So how do we fix this? Michelle Bishop says anything that increases options for voters is going to just make the system work better for voters with disabilities. But if she could change just one thing about the way we run elections, it would be this. It would be that all of our elections officials around the country bring people with disabilities into the process from the start and when they're designing an electoral system are getting input from people with disabilities so that those accessibility solutions are just baked in throughout rather than designing a system and then asking people with disabilities and trying to retrofit it to make it work for a whole bunch of people who weren't part of the process. We have to bring people with disabilities to the table. Ask your voters what it is that they need that would make it accessible to them and see how we can integrate that into the system. Michelle Bishop is manager of voter access and engagement at the National Disability Rights Network. To learn more about their work on this issue and hear stories from people with disabilities on what motivates them to vote, visit ndrn.org. That's ndrn.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. feel that it's fucked up. Another one of our innocent black men is dead from police brutality. It must stop. It must stop.
stop. If us as U.S. and D.C. citizens, if we can go hard for any other city, any other country, George Floyd, everybody else, what's the problem when it happens here in D.C.? Why can't we stand up for our own city? That was D.C. resident Amina, caught on the record by journalist Chuck Modi at a protest for Antoine Gilmore, who was killed by Metropolitan Police just a few weeks ago. Amina's sentiments echo the concerns of many residents who have become all too familiar with police violence in the city. Amara Evering has more. At the end of August, a woman wearing a shirt that read, quote, My Cousin's Keeper, marched through the streets of D.C. She said that her cousin had been executed and murdered by D.C. police. Behind her, a crowd shouted, shut it down, over and over and over again. The killing of 27-year-old Antoine Gilmore by D.C. police sent shockwaves through neighborhoods in Northeast D.C., tearing through communities all around the city. I spoke with Patrice Sultan, executive director of the D.C. Justice Lab, about this incident. Sultan explained to me what happened in the early morning hours of August 25th when Gilmore was found asleep in his car. So in this case, a number of Metropolitan Police Department officers decided to startle someone awake who was sleeping in his car. And as he drove away, they fired multiple rounds into a moving vehicle, which is already something that is against MPD's protocol, right? Already something that is against the rules that they're supposed to follow. Gilmore's foot was still on the brake when a group of officers surrounded his car early that morning. At the scene, they said they spotted a firearm. When he was eventually startled awake, he drove the car forward. Seconds later, an officer shot 10 rounds at him in a moving car, causing the vehicle to roll down several blocks until it crashed into a tree. At the scene of the shooting, those that witnessed the events unfold cried together. Afterwards, Lashana Greer, Antoine Gilmore's cousin, asked, quote, I want to know how did we get to the point where he was a threat? What I find really interesting about this case is that people are starting to have a conversation about what's preventable and what's avoidable, as opposed to just whether the officer's shooting was justified or not in the moment. Because so often we see video footage of the, of the moment that the person is being fired upon and a question about whether or not an officer would have felt frightened in that instance. And here we have a, a clearer, I think, example of here's a situation where the officers created the very danger that led to this person losing their life. The officers involved have been put on administrative leave, and yet in their absence, there is still a continued pattern of police violence in the city. There were four police involved shootings, two fatal in two weeks. And it is shocking to me that that's not national or global news this day and age. But the truth is police around our country shoot people on a daily basis. And the fact that it's concentrated in one city is not as alarming as it would have been a year ago, perhaps. In fact, only a week after Antoine Gilmore was killed in his car, George D. Watson was killed as he emerged from his own apartment by officers who mistook an airsoft pellet gun for a lethal weapon. 
At the scene, it was acknowledged that Watson was experiencing a mental health crisis by one of the officers. In response, Police Chief Conti commented, quote, It's unfortunate any time we have to use force. For protesters who marched from where Gilmer was shot in Northeast, this lethal use of force was a choice, a choice that D.C. police too often struggle with. It feels familiar to what we saw after Karan Hilton Brown died, to what we saw after DNK died. And there's never been a question about whether people are outraged by the way that state violence is occurring in our community. People are outraged. They have been for a long time. And so, you know, the question now is what's going to be done differently than what was done before. Despite a new black police chief, Robert J. Conti, Sultan believes that the department has retained much of the same practices and ideologies. And this was made clear for her when a video circulated of a man being punched repeatedly in the face by a DC officer. We had a community member videotape an officer punching a man repeatedly in the face during an arrest. And we saw the Metropolitan Police Department put out a statement in response to that incident where they went into detail about what the victim of that assault did to warrant an arrest and no mention whatsoever of the repeated punching, right? And that narrative shifting, I think, contributes to those cases that involve the use of a firearm, those cases that result in a person losing their life. It is all part of the same problem. And if we don't start to address those issues at the sort of shallower end of our policing problem, we're never going to resolve the deep end problems that we see day in and day out. So what are these deeper issues? Well, according to the D.C. Justice Lab, Black people in the city account for 90% of all police searches. Within D.C. jail, nearly 90% of that population is Black, despite the Black population in D.C. being around 47%. For Sultan, she believes that these disparities actually create the problems that agencies like the MPD say they want to address. The frustration from my side of the table is that we have evidence, decades and decades of evidence, and evidence from communities that are not black and brown, that what the police are doing by way of these aggressive tactics is actually driving the crime rate up, right? It is destabilizing those communities in a way that makes them much less safe. And lately, safety has been in the front of everyone's mind. Though there hasn't necessarily been a rise in overall crime, there has been a comparative rise in homicides in the city by 12%. 2021 has the potential of outpacing 2020 in fatal shootings. And instead of the MPD using different and potentially more effective approaches, Sultan believes that they have used these incidences of gun violence to justify existing tactics. And so the insistence on pointing to an individual episode of community gun violence and using that to justify a tactic that we know leads to more community violence is exceptionally frustrating to me and is really the impetus for starting DC Justice Lab, which is let's approach public safety from an evidence-based position, right? Let's look at what actually works. And it's, it's insulting, I think is the fairest word to use when people suggest that 
by wanting to move away from overly harsh, overly punitive approaches to gun violence, that it's because people don't care about victims or it's because they don't care about um, the rise in, in violent crime in the city. It's precisely for that reason that we wanna move away from what we've been doing so ineffectively for so very long. And one of the things we've been doing ineffectively is putting too much value on what feels safer. I really want us to move past thinking about what makes us feel safe and focus on what makes us actually be safe. But I understand the importance of feeling safe just because I want to take a longer view as a policy oriented person doesn't mean that people's short term feelings don't matter. They matter a great deal. I think there's a big difference between saying, okay, we're going to continue having this police presence after an incident or in a place where we've seen a pattern versus saying we're going to have jump outs going through our community, teaching our children that they have to lift up their shirt and show their waistband anytime an unmarked car comes near them. We're going to have thousands of search warrants executed on Black people's homes every year where we tear apart their belongings looking for drugs and currency. We're going to have police interrogating children without attorneys present. Those are very different tactics. And this means not just viewing gun violence as a problem that could be magically solved by searching people and collecting guns off the street. It's really, really very misleading to the public. The idea that we can go collect all of the guns off the streets, as porous as our borders are, as close as we are to Virginia, And that's going to be our solution to gun safety. We'll just collect all of the guns and we'll just lock up everybody who we find a gun on. That's not going to work. It's not effective. And I think if the public understood how few of the people that they're calling violent criminals actually engaged in shooting, (laughs) they would be calling on the police to solve the shootings instead of engaging in these really violent search practices that oftentimes turn up absolutely nothing. In the recommendations of the D.C. Justice Lab for MPD and legislators in the city has mostly gone unheard, or rather unread. I haven't heard the new chief, the deputy mayor, or the mayor say that they read the Police Reform Commission's report. We spent a lot of time doing deep community listening, serious research, and wrote over 250 pages of recommendations for this city to make policing right. And I have not heard any of them say that they even read the recommendations. And to me, that's a failure. There's been no effort to conduct a wholesale audit of what the department is doing. Um, We have no meaningful review of the tasks that they're engaged in, the assignments that they have, the tactics that they're using, and whether they're sensible. There's shockingly little collection and analysis and publication of data for a department that has $500 to $600 million per year to do its work. Um, And I haven't seen a shift in any of that um, with the change in leadership. D.C. Police Chief Conti has claimed that he will, quote, rethink the department's approach to its gun recovery unit, which has a reputation of randomly searching Black residents in the city. 
Yet, many activists have expressed doubt in real change, especially with two recent fatal police shootings, where MPD claimed that the appearance of a gun, whether it turned out to be real or fake, justified their actions. To truly prevent the loss of life, Salton believes that the answer is in legislation, such as the newly proposed Vehicular Pursuit Amendment. But what I really like about the way that we design the bill is that it has this objective factor, right? So it's not just asking what did the officer subjectively believe to be dangerous or not dangerous. It's, it requires a showing that the officer's belief was reasonable. And in spelling out what the fact finder would have to consider in terms of reasonableness, we included a lot of provisions, but one worth highlighting is that the officer has to have thought about whether there were alternative solutions, including just disbanding the attempt to apprehend the person, right? We have to ask ourselves when we're assessing reasonableness, would it have been easier for the officer to just let the person go in order to save that person's life? Did you think about just letting them go? That was Patrice Sultan, Executive Director at the DC Justice Lab. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering. Federal unemployment insurance programs shut down two weeks ago, but workers are refusing to return to an unequal normal. Efforts to reform UI have reached Congress, where more than a dozen House lawmakers have signed a letter demanding the issue be addressed as part of President Biden's Build Back Better agenda. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez also agreed last week to introduce legislation that would renew federal unemployment insurance programs until February next year. How are grassroots groups reacting to the lapse in federal benefits? And how are they keeping up the pressure on elected officials to make real change? Chris Banger Drowns reports. Unemployed workers and the organizations representing them don't have the luxury of letting up on the fight for better conditions, especially after the disheartening lapse in federal programs. Unemployed Workers United is one organization navigating this complex landscape. Earlier this month, the group filed a lawsuit in Arizona, alleging that Republican Governor Doug Ducey illegally cut UI benefits over the summer and asking that unemployed workers be paid up to $2,400 each in back benefits. Ray Wences, communications director of UWU, says they are still waiting for their first hearing in that case. We have not heard from the courts, but that does, that hasn't stopped us from continuing the organizing. We have a pretty active group on Facebook where workers um, continue to share their experiences. They check in on each other. They update each other on what's happening. You know, we update them on the legal updates. We update them on like federal policy, like what's happening at the federal level. And then ultimately, you know, we're also finding ways to continue to uplift their stories. Like much of our life during the pandemic, organizing, including that of unemployed workers, has largely moved online. With the pandemic, obviously a lot of things were closing. Many people were not able to meet in person anymore and meet to organize. So being able to 
create the containers, uh, the digital containers for people to meet and share their stories, their experiences, and also allow for people to self-organize um, has been, I think, key in pushing back against some of the attacks um, that workers, specifically unemployed workers, are, are facing. One key outcome of that self-organizing by workers are mutual aid networks, which also spread as a tactic amid last year's Black Lives Matter uprising. Ray Wences says they have seen unemployed workers organizing financial aid, food drives, and even shared childcare. If the unemployment insurance system was uh, working and meeting the needs of people during this uh, moment of crisis, then we probably would not be seeing so many people struggling. But unfortunately, that is not the case. And so I think mutual aid efforts um, are here to stay. And I think it's uh, it's the result of, of just the, the greater problems that people are facing. The Center for Popular Democracy also helps organize unemployed workers including through a digitally-based project called Unemployed Action. Rachel Deutsch, director of worker justice campaigns at CPD, says she's seen mutual aid networks distribute valuable knowledge in addition to material goods. There are folks in our community who've been living on the edge of poverty their whole lives and have developed so many skills for navigating an insufficient safety net and have been able to share that knowledge with folks who were securely middle class, who had you know, achieved a lot of financial security and then have been thrown uh, completely into despair and, and anxiety. Unemployed action also helps workers get active politically through protest and electoral organizing. That work is bolstered by the fact that workers have been through big fights around UI before, like last year's battle when $600 in supplemental benefits was set to expire. But Rachel Deutsch says the inaction by Democrats around Labor Day struck a blow to the faith of people in government's willingness to act on behalf of workers. We're in this moment where we have um, elected, you know, the right people, and yet um, we don't have that same sense of um, regard for people's security. And we also are seeing Congress moving through this Build Back Better package that leaves the broken unemployment insurance system untouched. So I think the organizing challenge in this moment is to help people feel that, you know, we can get um, a response from government for, you know, the unemployment crisis. And fortunately, we do have some champions, folks like um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, Representative Bush, and others who have been pushing for extensions, who are also pushing for uh, changes to the unemployment system in this reconciliation package. Last week's proposal from Representative Ocasio-Cortez would revive federal programs first established under the CARES Act, including benefits for gig workers and extended benefits for those who exhaust traditional state aid. Ocasio-Cortez's move is supported by Rachel Deutsch of Popular Democracy. Yes, it's, we're, we're in full support of Representative Ocasio-Cortez's policy, and as she well knows, it is yet another band-aid. When Congress passed the American Rescue Plan in March, there was an assumption that by Labor Day, you know, we'd all be back to work. And obviously conditions have not played out as expected. And this is a great example of why arbitrary end dates are not the way to run an unemployment insurance program. There are policies that have been introduced that would look at indicators on the ground 
one thing that we think is really important when looking at those indicators is that not every group recovers at the same pace. So black unemployment is typically much higher than white unemployment due to structural racism in the hiring process. Um, and we need to make sure that we achieve a recovery for every group of workers in this country before we start turning off that aid. So right now, yes, I will take an extension till February because people's lives are on the line. At the same time, it's really ludicrous for Congress to be uh, purporting to build back better when every single member of Congress has seen their constituents suffer because of these arbitrary deadlines. Ray Wences of Unemployed Workers United also sees Representative Ocasio-Cortez's measure as a band-aid or partial solution and says workers don't need simply another phase of UI. Instead, people want a transformation of that system. We actually have not made a decision on whether we're going to be supporting uh, this um, proposal by uh, Ocasio-Cortez, but I would say, I mean, she's she's moving on it. Um, because obviously she sees that there is a need, but I would really be more interested in, in also seeing how other elected officials um, and also how we can do more for the people that, that need the support now. I think giving it another arbitrary deadline is gonna continue to like put us in the same place when that deadline comes. As unemployed workers continue to pressure lawmakers to renew benefits and transform the system, correcting disparities in UI remains the task of grassroots organizations. We see a lot of disparities in terms of who accesses UI, right? So UI is really designed for white middle-class professional people, right? You're much more likely to apply for and receive UI if you're professional than if you're a service worker, if you're white compared to people of color. The, the one entity that has been able to kind of level those disparities are unions. So when you look at union members, they are much, much more likely to apply for and receive unemployment. And that is true across lines of educational attainment and race. For those workers who are members of unions or of mutual aid networks, survival in this economic crisis appears possible. But those who are not plugged into such grassroots networks must rely on the pittance that is state benefits, if they even still qualify for them and significant improvements to state programs are unlikely to appear without federal standards, says CPD's Rachel Deutsch. Ultimately, it's up to workers to push Congress to ensure that UI programs are robust and broadly supportive, and that they aren't tied to arbitrary cutoff dates that don't reflect the economic situation on the ground. The idea that we can build back better without fixing our broken unemployment system is really underestimating the number of people who experienced um, real pain during this pandemic because of the flaws in that system, who also experienced a lot of support from the government because of pandemic aid. But this is not an issue that's on the sideline for a lot of people. Even folks who have gone back to work are really invested in overhauling the system because the trauma that they experienced of not knowing whether their money would continue, some cases spending days on the phone trying to get through, that's going to stay with them for a very, very long time. The acute sense of, I need help, why can't I get it, is something that everybody who relied on unemployment experienced during this pandemic. So this is not a fringe issue, this affected one in four workers, and the expectation that this 
program would remain untouched and that the next recession would see us back in the same place is I think very politically misguided for members of Congress who are not prioritizing this. That's Rachel Deutsch, Director of Worker Justice Campaigns at the Center for Popular Democracy. Learn more about their work by visiting populardemocracy.org. And learn more about Unemployed Workers United, where Ray Wences is Communications Director, by visiting uwunited.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. E. Ethelbert Miller is a gifted and widely read poet. He hosts On the Margin, a poetry magazine on WPFW, Thursday mornings at 9 a.m. But recently, his writing has earned him a new honor. He's been recognized as a full-fledged U.S. baseball writer now. His second book of baseball poems in a planned trilogy is titled when your wife has Tommy John surgery, and it has just been released. My name is Ethelbert Miller, and I'm reading from my new collection, When Your Wife Has Tommy John Surgery. I'm going to read the poem, True Confessions of a Baseball. One, if they would replace my stitches with cornrows, I'm certain I could attract more black pitches. Two, when you come from a large family, People will toss you back and forth. Three, people keep falling over seats for me. Who needs a rain delay with so much seduction in the air? Four, I tell folks I have to always be handled with gloves. Five, every time I brush against a man's jersey, he tries to get to first base. So that's my poem from When Your Wife Has Tommy John Surgery. Wow. It's poetry, certainly. Mm -hmm. It's baseball, inside baseball, for sure. And it really is entertaining. Now, Right, yeah, I try to catch some humor in in, in my poetry at times. When Your Wife Has Tommy John Surgery, is that a metaphor or does... What happens when your wife has well, Tommy John surgery? Well, you know, what happens is that first it's Tommy John surgery, which is used to, you know, repair a pitcher's arm. Um, usually a pitcher can be another position player, but it's usually to repair the arm. And it's usually done in terms of taking a, a ligament from one part of your body, you know, to place in your arm to, to strengthen it. Uh, and it was a surgery that was started on the, uh, with Tommy John. Uh, he's the first person to undergo that type of surgery. And um, that's why it's called Tommy John surgery. What I try to do in my poem is use that as a, a sort of way of an, examining a, a relationship that has failed. And what happened is the person's trying to improve that relationship. You know, so I'll read the title poem. When your wife has Tommy John surgery, your wife says you need therapy. Her words keep hitting the corner of the plate. You step out of the box and talk to yourself. You already know the next pitch that's coming. It's the argument that leaves her hands with marriage deception. It's the hard, fast stuff, the slamming of a door, the turning of the back in bed. You can no longer recognize the rotation of love, the spin of desire, the funny movement of lust. Your wife has changed, and now she's seeing 
someone else. And so you see it here that that poem is even like a failed marriage. You know, um, there's, there's an attempt in the first stanza to try to save the uh, marriage in terms of your wife says you need therapy. And many people go through counseling and try to keep their relationship together. But then after a while, the argument, you know, you see it coming. And so the second stanza uh, is the hard, fast stuff, the slamming of the door, the turning of the back in bed. And then as you get to the end of the poem, the third stanza, you see that the wife decides she has to do something. So that's where the Tommy John surgery comes in. Are you a poet who writes about baseball or a baseball writer who speaks in verse? Well, I'm a literary activist before anything else. Uh, and, and I see myself as a literary activist and, and a writer because I, I don't only not simply write poetry. I also write in other genres. You know, I've written two memoirs. Um, I do a lot of essay writing. And so that, that's the way I look at myself as a writer and then as a literary activist because I'm very concerned about the literary community. I'm really concerned about social political issues that are outside the literary field. And so I try to bring my activism and my literature, uh, interest in literature together. But in terms of what comes first, you know, um, I'm reading from this book, uh, which is the second book in what's going to be a uh, trilogy, baseball trilogy. So the book that, it's, that will come out next year is How I Fell in Love Behind the Catcher's Mask. So I'm a writer first. I turned to writing baseball because that's the game I grew up with. That's the game I enjoy. But I go back writing about baseball, writing about my childhood, but then I bring it forward into these other issues that we see us here, you know, dominating our time, whether it's, you know, climate change, whether it's race relations. And so I use the game of baseball as a way, as a metaphor to examine other things. But I begin with that love for baseball and I carry it into my love for writing. The Vita Blue of letters. Right, right. By the blue, right? You know, and one of the things I, I'll tell you here, you give you a jump on uh, what's happening in the, the book that comes out next year, How I Fell Up Behind the Catcher's Man. You know that when you look at African-American literature, many times you'll find many writers saying, oh, I'm influenced by, you know, jazz and blues. And it's always something musical. You know, that's why some people are excited about doing spoken word. What I've been doing in the last number of poems is reading the next book. Uh, I'm looking more and more at uh, the visual arts, you know, um, and how that, how I can bring that visual art reference into uh, one of my poems. Like there's going to be a poem in the, in the next book, which is entitled "Sunra Left Me Here in Front of the Sam Gilliams." <laughs> okay, so that's you know, um, Sunra and, and the visual art Sam Gilliams in the title. And so what happens is that when I look at this book, I feel just like a musician. I mean, I'm, I'm moving into new areas. You know, I'm like Charlie Parker now, playing with strings you know, John Coltrane, you know, um, turning east. So all of a sudden I'm looking at my work in terms of, okay, how is it transforming itself? And I see myself going from the from just the music references, you know, into the visual art references. Okay, making these transitions, you describe yourself mm -hmm. as an activist. We know you mm -hmm. as a writer, a poet. Um, so I'm seeing various people here. You've been known as E. Bert, E. Right. Ethelbert Miller, Eugene E. Miller. Right. Uh, are these different personalities? And the, the way you're describing yourself as an, all these different worlds of spheres of influence, maybe they are different personalities inside you and different writing voices. 
Well, it, I, I, I think that all of us today, uh, Askir, and you would know this because you know your your relationship with Islam. Uh, I'll use Audrey Lord. Audrey Lord talks about her many her many selves. You know, we have our many selves. Like for example, you we can go back and look at how Du Bois talked about the double consciousness at one time. Well, we know today in 2021, black people have a triple consciousness. Somebody might be black, American, and Muslim. <laughs> you know, somebody is, is black, lesbian. You know, uh, and, and American. There, there, there's there's various ways that we now look at ourselves. Uh, when we look in the mirror, when we step out into a community. And for me as a writer, I want to bring that complexity, um, you know, to, to my work because it keeps looking at, it reflects the world. The world is very complex. You know, there's a lot of things that are happening in baseball that are very complex and will affect our lives. The whole thing of analytics, you know, the whole thing of trying to speed the game up. This is the type of world that we live in. It's a very complex world and difficult world. And what happens is that when you go out here and try to define yourself or fill out a form and try to put yourself in a little box, you know, you realize that, you know, many things can't fit one box. I'm black and I'm Cuban. You know, what box do I check? Okay. And and that becomes the, the type of world that we live in. And it has the same way in terms of how we see the, the game of baseball changing. All of a sudden, you know, we see Japanese players excelling in the, in baseball, breaking down certain stereotypes. And sometimes what happens in terms of issues of how we see a person, sometimes we see a person because we see the stereotype and nothing more. Geography question. Mm -hmm. Did being a New Yorker give you any kind of a swerve or sense of advantage? You can make it in New York. You can make it anywhere. When you came, to, <laughs> when you came to DC, I mean, here you are going to school, a stone's throw from Griffith stadium. Did you feel like, Cool Papa Bell, somebody uh, just, you know, I'm I'm on top of this. I got this mound. Or well, you know, well, or, or, I, or, or did you get or did you get schooled by by the uh, the, the 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 homeboys and bamas of DC? Well, yeah, yeah, you know, you talk about getting to the south, DC. No, it was moving beyond New Jersey, brother. You know, it was like getting past like Trenton and Hoboken. You know what happened? I remember 1968. I took the train down with my mother and aunt, you know, coming to Howard University. And the train stopped in Aberdeen, Maryland, brother. And I looked out and I didn't know where I was going. You know, and that was my discovery. Okay, I was in Aberdeen, Maryland. Okay, and I'm a New Yorker. And I realized, just like Frederick Douglass, that I was in the South. You know, I have to always remind people that Frederick Douglass ran away from Maryland, not Mississippi. Okay, so when I came down, and you were just a you know, it was a small town. I remember you could go out on Georgia Avenue and, and you could hitchhike with somebody. You know, you could walk down like Euclid and, you know, people would sit on tooth and talk to you and stuff like that. You know, this is before the crack epidemic came in. But what happened, I knew that I was in the South. And then I remember clearly how I was a New Yorker because I was down in 1974. I was in New Orleans and I went to, to Baton Rouge, right? And in New Orleans, I brought a T-shirt that said New Orleans. When I was walking across the campus of Southern University, a guy said, oh, man, you from the city. And I said, yeah, I'm from New York. He said, oh, no, no. And he was talking about New Jersey. And I looked down at my shirt. I said, hey, brother, New Orleans ain't the city, brother. <laughs> you know, New Orleans, is, you know, that, that's a T-shirt, you know. And, and it was funny because all of a sudden I realized how much of a New Yorker I was. The same way, um, Askia, my first day, I think, at Howard University, I went in to get my little breakfast. And it was grits and stuff like that. And that's when I knew I was 
I was West Indian, <laughs> you know. I knew that my father was, was not born in the U.S., <laughs> you know, because all of a sudden I said, we did not eat this in my house, you know. I didn't have that Southern, you know, my family's West Indian, you know. And, and what happens being in Washington, and I'm not even going to go off the campus yet, I knew I was in a different environment. Ethelbert Miller, poet and lifelong baseball fan, though Nat King Cole describes one game Ethelbert surely did not attend the first baseball game. My sermon today, said the Reverend Jones, is baseball and whence it came. If you take the good book and you take a good look, you will find the first baseball game. It says Eve stole first and Adam second. Solomon umpired the game. Rebecca went to the well with the pitcher. And Ruth in the field made a name. Goliath was struck out by David. A base hit made on Abel by Cain. And the prodigal son Made a great home run, brother Noah gave checks out for rain. Now old St. Pete was checking errors, also had charge of the gate. Salome sacrificed Big John the Baptist, who wound up ahead on the plate. Delilah was pitching to Samson. When he brought down the house with a clout And the angels that day made a double play That's when Adam and Eve were thrown out Now Jonah wailed and went down swinging Later he popped up again A lion drive by old Nebuchadnezzar Made Daniel warm up in the pen Satan was pitching that apple It looked as though he might fan them all But then Joshua let go With a mighty blow And he blasted one right at the wall Shouting, come along And let's play And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banker Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Thank you for listening, and thanks for contributing to WPFW Washington and to WBAI New York. (laughs) 